about the rest of the ten paramis that I began speaking about two nights ago. Having gone through the factor of force of generosity and then morality, renunciation and wisdom, we come to the next parmi, the fifth, which is the factor of energy or effort in the mind. Energy or effort is known as that quality which is supporting and upholding and sustaining. Said that when the mind becomes withered, if you can just imagine a withered mind, when the mind becomes shriveled, that which can sustain it, which can uphold it and support it is this quality of energy or effort. Just as an old house can be supported by new pillars, so our minds, our heartfelt interest in the practice can be supported by this quality of energy. When this factor of energy is strong enough so that it is part of developing it as a perfection or force of purity, then this quality cannot be shaken by idleness or laziness or considerations or hesitating. Energy or application of oneself is considered the root of all achievement when it's very full, when there's no bargaining and no pulling back. In our lives, our daily lives, we can experience four kinds of four aspects of effort or energy. And these are first, to enhance wholesome states or states of beauty that have already arisen within us. The second, is not getting entangled in unwholesome or unskillful states that have already arisen. The third is encouraging wholesome or skillful or beautiful states of mind that have not yet arisen. And the fourth is discouraging unwholesome states not yet arisen, not going around looking for them. This has a lot to do these four ways of applying ourselves or supporting our endeavor, it has a lot to do with that element or that factor of the Eightfold Path called right thought or right aspiration, which is based on a deep understanding of the truth of what actually brings us happiness and a sense of peace and contentment and what leads us away from that, however it might be packaged or advertised, what in essence is the nature and the characteristic and the result of dwelling in and cultivating certain states. It's easy to see as we sit here paying careful attention to thinking 
rather than getting particularly swept up in it or drawn off into it, it becomes easy to see how some kinds of thoughts have the potential for creating truly endless suffering because they are not the attitudes or aspirations which in and of themselves will come to a natural state of balance or harmony or rest. There are some approaches or attitudes which intrinsically cannot bring us to rest. For example, the mind state of comparison and judgment. If we're comparing ourselves to other people or to previous experience or to future dreamed of experience, that kind of thought, that kind of way of being or attitude does not have a natural ending. It, it does not bring us at any time to a state of composure because it is endless. We might, if we're comparing ourselves to someone else, feel quite happy because in this act of comparison we might say, oh, well, I'm, I'm better than he or she is. Here I am. I've been sitting for an hour and a half and they haven't been able to sit still for two and a half minutes since the day has begun and I'm clearly better. And we might feel some happiness out of that. But then we might become aware of the person sitting on the other side of us and say, uh-oh, if I've been sitting here for an hour and a half and they've been sitting, they were sitting in here when I walked in, then they may have been sitting for as long as two hours already and they still haven't moved. And then we're plunged into despair. We may even compare ourselves to someone else and find ourselves equal to them for now. But we have to stay watchful. We have to stay external because who knows, this person who has been moving all morning may show unexpected promise in the afternoon and <laughs> may sit like a rock and there we are, defeated and left behind. And what happened? Especially someone who comes from so far behind deserves even more credit. And here we are just kind of laboring along, nothing special. So the very attitude intrinsically is a state of restlessness or lack of balance because we're always leaning forward or looking outside and being anxious in some way. And so getting involved and entangled in thoughts of comparison and judgment like that necessarily brings suffering. They can't come to some kind of peace or rest. It's having an understanding based on our own experience of the qualities of our thoughts and the mental factors and their own nature so that we can see that thoughts of craving and greed or thoughts of aversion or thoughts of cruelty bring harm to ourselves as well as harm to other beings that in their very nature, 
they feel painful. We can experience that. And having a, a kind of determination not to cultivate these, these states, not to just stay endlessly in this morass of judgment and compa- comparison and cruelty or aversion or greed, but to know that we have the power to detach from these thoughts, even if they have already arisen, not to keep feeding them. It's a very self-affirming understanding that we have that ability. However strong the force might be, we can detach from it and we can come to a state of understanding. And to have the determination to cultivate the energy of love and compassion and wisdom in our lives. This is the quality of effort that is the parmi or the force of purity because it is so strengthening and so self-affirming in the sense of enhancing self-respect. This factor of energy this one factor of energy performs all of these functions, all of the four, enhancing wholesome states already arisen, helping us not get entangled in unwholesome states already arisen, encouraging wholesome states not yet arisen, and discouraging unwholesome states not yet arisen. This one quality of energy performs all these functions. When we look at all of the lists, which are just gradually being talked about, there's this one major compilation of many of the different lists of qualities and attributes that the Buddha talked about in terms of what the meditation develops. And this uh, kind of umbrella list is called the list of the 37 factors of enlightenment. And because it is a compilation of a lot of these different things, like the Eightfold Path, um, the Seven Limbs of Enlightenment, because it's a compilation of a lot of different um, divisions, there's, there's a fair amount of repetition in it. Certain qualities appear more than once. And of all the repetitions in it, the one that appears the most is the factor of energy. Energy, in this list of the 37 factors of enlightenment, appears nine times. Mindfulness appears eight times. So you can see that above all else, there can be the understanding of our own role in this process of an energetic application of ourselves, of calling from within those resources and and a sense of earnestness. Effort, in this sense, is a kind of effortless effort, because it's not an effort to change what is going on. It's not an effort to manipulate the experience. It's just an energetic application of oneself 
with earnestness, without holding back, without withdrawing from what's going on. So it's a very, it's a fullness and a surrender. We can continually find and renew this kind of energetic application of mindfulness. Especially if we can recognize the rarity and preciousness of the opportunity of being here. If you can sense the distinction between a feeling of urgency and a feeling of panic, then the distinction between a wholehearted, energetic application and a straining effort can become more apparent. It's a sense of urgency to really use this fully and completely. To live each day fully without a moment going to waste is bringing that, that parmi or that, that force of purity, of energy to far greater perfection. The next parmi is that of patience. Patience is said to be like the cool shade of a tree to a person who is affected by the heat of the sun. Patience is relief. Patience is tolerance or forbearance. When patience is a strength within us, when it's a quality that we have cultivated or that is strong within us, then it can remove stiffness and resistance from the mind. One of the pivotal interviews that I had with Upandita this summer was a time when I went in and he asked me some question, I don't know, tell me how you brush your hair or one of those. And I told him and it wasn't quite right. And I was starting to get sort of impatient because there I was moving around at a snail's pace and noting 15 intentions and 47 sensations in the act of brushing my hair and it wasn't quite right. And he looked at me and he shook his head and he said, if you want to do this practice, you need infinite patience. And I believed him. I think it's correct. If you want to do this practice, you need infinite patience. And at the same time, doing the practice will help cultivate infinite patience. I used to take comfort in my practice by thinking that if nothing else was happening on a particular day or at a particular time, at least I could be cultivating patience which is actually a very powerful thing to be cultivating. And it is an important force in our practice to be able to be patient, to be able to be tolerant. This does not mean kind of gritting one's teeth and waiting something out in a, a disdainful or, or irritable way, just 
can't, you know, not being able, just hardly being able to wait until it goes away, but hanging in there somehow. But rather it means an openness and a long enduring constancy so that our sense of faith and our sense of energy and our sense of understanding can remain strong. Example is used of a hen sitting on an egg to hatch it. The laws of nature will follow their own course, taking their own time. The hen merely has to apply constancy and patience in sitting there and sitting there and sitting there. The hen sits down and then decides to take a walk or go have a cup of tea or do some laundry and come back, sits on the egg for another 10 seconds, you know, takes another walk. Nothing is going to happen. And yet the laws of nature will follow their own course if everything is nurtured properly, if it's supported and taken care of. And this is, this is the factor of patience, being able to be tolerant, to be able to be constant without a lot of variation. Joseph sometimes tells a story, I don't know if he's told it in this, in this retreat, about when he was, I think, around 12 years old and he was growing a garden for the first time. And he was, one of the things he was growing in the garden was carrots. And he used to get so excited, he said, as he'd watch the, the green um, stuff come up out of the earth, that he would run over to the garden every day and pull out the carrots to see how well they were growing. <laughs> Needless to say, he didn't get many carrots. And that's something that we do as well. It's a kind of, you know, we see a little green sprout and we say, oh great, there's something growing under there. And we yank it up out of the earth. And we say, oh, what's happened? You know, that's the kind of assessment and pulling back and judgment and wondering rather than just the constancy and the patience to just keep nurturing the garden, understanding that nature will take its own course, the Dharma will unfold however it unfolds, and we have to do only our job, which is that energetic application of mindfulness. We're like the hen sitting on the egg. We need to just sit there and allow it to hatch. And that means not wandering off and not, not following distractions, but a long enduring constancy. And just as things pure and impure may be cast upon the earth, which supports us and sustains us, the earth doesn't show pleasure or pain. It doesn't reject some things and, and accept others. It's that long enduring constancy which is openness and acceptance. A long time ago, early in the history of IMS, we received a letter addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. <laughs> that was about two weeks after we'd received a letter addressed to the Hindsight Meditation Society. <laughs> that one I never figured out. But the Instant Meditation Society, I thought, was really intriguing. <laughs> because what would we all like better than, you know, a kind of dehydrated package where we just had to add the water <laughs> and mix it up a little bit, and there we were. 
You know, we all want that somewhere in our hearts. But it doesn't exist. There is no easier way. There is no instant way. It is a long, slow, gradual process of coming to a deeper and deeper understanding and greater and greater freedom. I know that many of you have experienced, certainly over the last week of the retreat, in the last few days especially, kind of sense of being on a roller coaster. There have been tremendous ups and downs, and people are experiencing a lot of swings and a lot of changes. And some people feel like they're kind of hanging over the edge of the car in the roller coaster by their fingernails. And other people have some more of a sense of sitting comfortably and safely within the seat with their seat buckle on and just kind of going for the ride. It's a sense of patience because the ups and downs and the highs and the lows and the sense of being on a roller coaster is very natural. It's not abnormal or weird in any way. It's the way things develop. A tremendous sense of patience and tolerance and forbearance is necessary to be able to continually let go, to continually open up without feeling shaken or frightened or despairing. Kind of constancy as patience. The next, the seventh parmi, a quality of force of purity, is that of truthfulness. And truthfulness, I think, is separated out from a sense of basic morality or commitment to basic morality because of its incredible importance both in our daily lives and in our practice. I think it's set aside and separated out because of its importance and its, its distinction, its ability to purify and empower our minds. And because of what happens, when we are not honoring the sense of truth or truthfulness. I think I mentioned previously that in the Buddha had said that in his previous lives as a bodhisattva or a person seeking enlightenment, as he was going through lifetime after lifetime of perfecting these ten qualities until the moment when he had earned the right, so to speak, to be sitting under the tree, the Bodhi tree, with an aspiration for complete freedom. During all of those lifetimes, there are many stories that are compiled about those lifetimes. Sometimes the Buddha was reborn as a human being, and sometimes he was reborn as an animal, like a rabbit or a bird and things like that. And in many of these stories, um, the Bodhisattva breaks a precept of one kind or another because of the difficulties of adhering to a very strict sense of morality 
because he was in the process of perfecting these qualities and had not brought them to full completion. Sometimes there are stories about the, Buddhist, the Bodhisattva stealing or something like that. Um, even as he was trying to cultivate the forces of purity. But in all of those past lives, from the very moment that he first made the aspiration to become a Buddha, throughout countless lifetimes of developing these qualities, it is said that the one thing he never ever did was to tell a lie. So that even though due to some kind of weakness or difficulty or complexity, he might have done other things that had proved harmful to himself or to others. The one thing he absolutely could not do from the moment he turned his heart towards an ultimate sense of truth was to violate even a relative sense of truth. Because the relative truth for him and for us, the truth of this very moment, the relative truth as we experience it, is the vehicle for our touching ultimate truth. It is through a clear and direct perception of the truth of this very moment, moment after moment, that we can come to a personal and direct touching of absolute truth or ultimate truth. And so to violate relative truth in any way is like stealing or discarding the opportunity of this moment to bring us closer to absolute truth. To lie to another is like stealing that opportunity from someone else and from ourselves. And so it is actually a very grave difficulty because it brings so much darkness and confusion. And to adhere strictly, to really respect the power of truthfulness brings tremendous light and freedom into our practice and into our lives. Because in each moment, we can use the truth of the present moment as a vehicle to go far deeper. There's a story that I usually tell when I talk about truthfulness about a friend of mine who went to India a few years ago because she wanted to do a meditation retreat. And she called her mother and said to her that, told her that she was going to India to do this retreat, but she thought her mother would be very frightened if she was going by herself. And so she told her mother that her husband was going with her. She also told her mother that if anything happened, if there was some kind of an emergency and she needed to be found in India, to call the number of the house where I was living. So one night, this woman's husband, about, this is about three and a half weeks later, and the woman is, is due home from India any day, her husband came over for dinner. And about 10 minutes after he'd walked out the door, the phone rings. It's my friend's mother. And she says to the person who answers the phone, have you heard from my daughter or her husband lately? 
My friend who answered the phone said quite spontaneously, oh, he just walked out the door. <laughs> and immediately, my friend's mother said, what do you mean, didn't he go to India? <laughs> and from that moment on, we were caught. First, the person who had answered the phone said, oh, well, um, yeah, he went to India, and you know, he, he, had a, he had some business things he had to come back for. So he came back a few days early, but she's all right. Don't worry about it. You know, she's fine. And this woman at the other end of the phone was getting more and more agitated because she could tell that she was being lied to. And the only reason she could think that she was being lied to would be some, some you know, really painful one. So she started saying, what's wrong? Is she sick? Is she, de is she dead? <laughs> I know she's dead. <laughs> you know, and she's, she was getting really upset. And we're saying, oh, no, it's fine. You know, it's, he just walked out the door. He just came back a couple of days early. Everything's all right. We hung up. She started calling around all these different people that we knew in, in the community. And realizing she was going to do this, we had to start calling around all these different people in the community to make sure that they would tell her the same thing we had told her. So we're calling all of these people that we knew. She's calling all of these people that we knew. And then she decides that, well, maybe we're not going to tell her the truth, but if she gets like a neighbor of hers to call, somebody that we didn't know that we could tell the awful truth to, then we would finally tell the truth. So this, this total stranger starts calling us, and then she calls all the way around, you know, everyone we know. And we're calling everyone we know to say, hey, listen, this woman's going to call, you know, and this is what you've got to tell her. And it just became completely insane as everyone was calling everyone else to confirm the lies and make sure they were all, everyone was telling the same lie. Somewhere in the middle of that, Michelle was staying, staying at the house at the time, I remember that, somewhere in the middle of that, picked up the phone, and who was on the other end but this obscene caller? And it seemed to me one of the perfect examples of karma coming back. I just had the feeling that the energy we were sending out of that house was so bizarre <laughs> that it was just like a magnet drawing in this really bizarre energy because we, as a result of what we were doing and having to continually reinforce and bolster these lies, we were chained to the telephone. There was no way we could just hang up and not answer the phone for the next two or three hours until this person got tired. You know, but we constantly had to answer the phone in case it was this woman's mother and we had to tell her a lie. You know, so we kind of bound ourselves to this really bizarre energy. Somewhere through that night, somebody just couldn't bear it anymore. And they said, I can't stand it. I'm just going to tell her the truth. And they told her the truth. But by that time, she was so confused and so upset that she didn't believe that either. So my friend came back from India two or three days later, she was met as she was coming down the runway by a person with a message, you must call your mother immediately. She thinks you're dead, <laughs> you know? So even out of a compa seemingly compassionate motive of wanting to spare someone anxiety and pain, this terrible morass of deceit and anxiety and fear which was just horrible, grew. And it was a great lesson in the power of honesty and the 
the darkness and the confusion and the complexity of dishonesty. So in dealing with other people and in dealing with ourselves, and our practice is a perfect place for understanding the cultivation of that degree of honesty, that much honesty as we're looking within. To be able to experience anything without needing to distort it or disguise it or make believe it's something else. It's a tremendous power to be truthful. The next quality or parami or force of purity is that of resoluteness or resolution. And that is also a quality of strength. If you can understand that it is strength and not force or straining, then it is a good intuition into the particular flavor of this quality. To be resolute, to have strength and determination, not self-denial or self-hatred or straining or um, trying to force things to move in a certain way. But it's having the flexibility and the lightness of mind to be able to test one's limits to have a sense of resolve, of being able to put our mind to something and carry it through, not to be feeble or wavering or overcome by changing circumstance. So it's like the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree. Many things came and went, but he maintained his composure because of the force of that resolve. Just as we might exercise a muscle of the body, we can exercise the mind and strengthen this quality is a very powerful way of developing self-respect. Because when the mind is feeble and wavering and constantly being overcome by whims and desires, there's not a tremendous amount of self-respect because there's not a great deal of strength and dignity to that. To be able to foster and develop the power of resolution without straining and without self-condemnation or anger, but really seeing it as a kind of exercise, as a development. The Buddha made the resolve to sit under that tree until he had attained perfect enlightenment. We We may not be able to do that. Most likely we're not but we can understand the power of that kind of determination and the suppleness and flexibility of mind that it can imply. It's important that when we make a resolve, both in our lives and in the context right now of doing intensive practice, that it be a realistic resolve so that we can truthfully say We can put our energy behind that and maintain it. It's not that helpful, for example, to sit down and make a resolve. Well, now I'm going to start being perfectly mindful for the rest of my life. It's quite doubtful. 
that that would be something that we can actually cultivate. If we sit down and say, I'm going to try to be aware and mindful during this entire sitting, and whenever I find that I haven't been, I'm going to immediately begin again. That is a very realistic resolve. We all have the capacity to do that. And so it's making realistic resolves in the sense of knowing what we are capable of doing and having an exploration or spirit of exploration about where the limits are. The next quality, after generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, and resoluteness, is the quality of equanimity. There are always, in meditation, as a microcosm or a reflection of our daily lives, and in our lives, there are always going to be vicissitudes. There are always going to be ups and downs and changes. There is praise and blame and pleasure and pain and gain and loss and fame and infamy. And that is the very nature, the very fabric of our existence, is that constant change. There is always going to be pleasure and pain and pleasure and pain and praise and blame. That is simply the way things are. To be able to experience that with a genuine openness and a deep acceptance, with neither attachment nor aversion, is the function of the force of equanimity. To be able to experience all of the changes, all of the vicissitudes with equanimity brings the possibility of experiencing a kind of contentment and happiness that is beyond measure. It brings the possibility of experiencing a kind of unconditioned happiness because the happiness is not needful of a certain thing happening or a certain thing remaining without any kind of change. When we live dwelling or depending on a happiness that is based on only pleasure and no pain, or only praise and no blame, or only gain and no loss, then we are in a very insecure, uncertain, hesitant, and frightening world. Because inevitably, there will be gain and loss and praise and blame and pleasure and pain. Our happiness need not be so fragile, so dependent, so conditioned, because the force of equanimity itself is a force of great happiness and peace and contentment. To develop that ability to experience things without attachment and without aversion 
is actually a deeper kind of enjoyment because it is without the anxiety and without the grasping. The Buddha once, there was once a story from the Buddha's time. It had to do with this man who came to the monastery to hear a discourse. First he went up to this monk and asked him to give a discourse on, on the Dharma, on the truth. And the monk kept silent. He wasn't speaking. And the man got really enraged, quite infuriated, and stomped away. The next day, he came back to the monastery and he approached the Venerable Sariputra, who was the Buddha's chief disciple, who was extremely erudite and intellectual. He was foremost of all the Buddha's disciple in, in analytical wisdom. It's said, in fact, that his, his extreme intellectual ability was something of a hindrance in his practice because he couldn't just have an experience and let go of it, but he'd have to have it and then think about it and look at it from a hundred different angles before he could let go of it. Nonetheless, he overcame that and became enlightened and was considered the foremost in analytical knowledge. So this man approaches the Venerable Sariputra and asks him for a discourse. And the Venerable Sariputra starts talking and he talks on and on and on and on as he's going through all these different ramifications and aspects of the Dharma. And the man starts getting really bored and, and really upset and he gets angrier and angrier and finally he becomes furious and he just stomps away. Third day, he comes back to the monastery and he approaches the Venerable Ananda, who is another of the Buddha's disciples. And Ananda, knowing that, this man had become enraged because on the first day, a monk had responded too little. And on the second day, had become enraged because a monk had responded at great length, was very careful it is said, to deliver a medium-length discourse <laughs> so as not to give this man another opportunity to be angry. But nonetheless, the man began getting angry because he thought Ananda was not uh, going into matters deeply enough and he was not treating the Dharma with the proper respect because he was talking in such, just such a moderate length. And again, by the end, he became quite furious and stomped away. And this trio of events was related to the Buddha. And the Buddha's comment was, there's always blame in this world. If you say too little, some people will blame you. If you say too much, some people will bla blame you. If you say just a moderate amount, some people will blame you. There's always blame in this world. And that is the reality of our lives. There's praise and blame and gain and loss, and pleasure and pain. And that is simply how things are. We have the ability and the capacity to develop poise and grace and composure with all of these changes, not being enslaved by the ups and downs. This is the factor of equanimity. 
which we are cultivating here in every moment of experience. It doesn't matter if it's a sight or a sound or a smell or a taste or a sensation in the body or a thought or memory or idea or realization. Every single moment is an opportunity for being able to relate to our experience without attachment and without aversion, but with that sense of poise and ease and acceptance that is equanimity. And then the last quality, the last parami, is that of metta, or loving-kindness. And again, this is the development of this quality to the degree that it becomes an actual power or force in our practice and in our lives. <clears throat> to have a silent awareness and dispassionate awareness of all of our different experiences of sights and sounds and thoughts and tastes and so on is also to have an experience that is surrounded by the force of loving kindness and acceptance and non-judgment, non-condemning. This is metta to have the silence that we are dwelling in charged throughout with the feeling and the force of loving-kindness and care. Part of this force or parami of metta is the quality of forgiveness to understand how very much things are changing, how they are arising and passing away, to be able to accept change fully is connected somehow with the ability to forgive, to let go, to let things be, to understand how things are changing, that what is past is done with, to be able to let go fully and begin again in this very moment. It's the, it's the feeling of forgiveness to allow and to accept. Another element in metta as, as a parami or force of purity is that of gratitude. To be able to remember and respect those people or those situations which have proved very beneficial or useful to us. It said that there are two types of rare and precious people. The first kind of rare and precious person is a benefactor, someone who is good-hearted, who is kind, and performs good deeds to help others. The second type of rare and precious person is someone who is grateful and is able to show gratitude towards a benefactor. It's these two aspects of forgiveness and gratitude that can help tremendously to enhance and deepen that feeling of kindness and compassion, which can become a tremendous force in our lives. 
in our practice in this situation, we develop that feeling of metta or loving kindness with all of its different aspects, both towards others as we are forced to live here in a community, and also primarily towards ourselves to be able to relate to our experiences with a sense of forgiveness, with a sense of gratitude, and with a sense of openness and kindness, not judging. It's essential to the practice, to the development of greater depth of understanding. It can fuel a great energy and purify constantly the quality of mindfulness and watchfulness we are bringing to the moment. It will continually purify that and soothe us and ease out the judgments and the aversions and the condemnation that we might well be bringing to our observation of experience. And so consciously cultivating that sense of loving kindness, of caring towards ourselves and then towards others. All ten of these qualities brought together of generosity and morality, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resoluteness, equanimity, and loving-kindness, that is what our endeavor is about. It's not about attaining supernatural states, and it's not about experiencing fleeting bliss. It is about the cultivation of these ten attributes or forces, because it is these ways of being or attitudes towards our life that will cleanse the heart and the mind and make it full of light and joy. The Buddha said at one point, in reference to the paramis, do not be afraid of these actions. These actions are another word for happiness, for delight. So it's seeing these ten as the framework in which we are practicing, because it is this framework that can enable us to live a good life with a great deal of happiness. And it is also this framework that can reconcile the inner work that we do here and the outer work we do in daily life into one unity, because it is not different whether we are cultivating patience at a bus stop or cultivating patience in the upper walking room, it doesn't really matter. But it is the devotion and understanding to the development of all of these qualities that is actually the essence of the practice. So rather than in any way assessing 
the practice and your progress in the practice in terms of experiences, in terms of the content of experiences, if you are in a mood to assess and you want to figure out if there's been any progress, look towards how any or all of these ten forces have been growing, could grow further through careful nurturance and support because this is what is really happening. All of the rest is sort of like which movie you happen to be seeing on the airplane flight (laughs) or what meal happens to be being served. This stuff is the flight. This is what will get you from point A to point B. The movie may not be very tastefully done. You'd probably rather sleep through it. (laughs) Nonetheless, the movie is really inessential. It is the development of factors such as energy and truthfulness and patience and resolution and morality, which is the very essence of what the endeavor is, both within the context of doing intensive retreat and in the larger understanding of applying these principles or values to our lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.